This morning's scripture is from the book of Mark, chapter 2, verses 1 through 22. Hear the word of the Lord. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up, take your mat, and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone. And they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, How is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your presence here with us this morning. We ask that 
As we turn to your word now, you would give us ears to hear. Jesus, may you speak to us. May you incline our hearts, our thoughts, our wills, our emotions, all towards you. May we put ourselves in a posture of humble reliance on you. Help us to seek you, Lord, with all that we are, and may you alone receive all glory today. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning, if uh, you notice things like this, you'll see that all of the songs and everything leading up to this was focused on sin and sinners. I joked with the music ministry team that the service this morning was centered around Van Sachs, our bass player, you know, because, you know, we know all bass players are such large sinners. So it's kind of like, you know, remember old Sesame Street, today's episode brought to you by the letter B, you know, today's episode of church brought to you by bass players everywhere. So uh, who are great sinners? But sinners, the reason I say that is because that is what links all of this long passage together. Jesus' relationship with sinners in different ways. And so that's what we're going to look at, and we're going to get through as much as we can in the time we have together. And I'll begin by asking you, what do you need most in life? And why would you answer that way to that question? Now, I ask you that because it is related to our passage today, and how you answer that will say a lot. Now, we're going to turn to this rather dramatic account that we have. Jesus has returned to Capernaum only to be mobbed. And I'll go through what Alan just read a moment ago. We read in the opening verses, a few days later when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Jesus has come home, and that's interesting. We can pass by this real quickly. We don't know whether it was Jesus' home or whether it was Peter's home that Jesus was using as a base while in Capernaum. Commentators are divided on this, but you honestly can't nail it one way or another whose home it is. So it was either Jesus's or Peter's. But we do know this with certainty. The place is crowded with a crush of people. Now, we are sometimes, we got plenty of room in here today because it's Memorial Day weekend. Uh, sometimes on other Sundays, we have a, you know, a little bit of tightness, and you're looking for spots unless you get here early. There was no room left in this house. This is wall-to-wall people standing outside into the foyer, outside into the parking lot. Jesus is mobbed by a crush of people. And so we continue reading that some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since, he could not, since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, "'Son, your sins are forgiven.'" Now, just imagine you're in that crowd that day. Or imagine this happening here. You hear something up at the roof. It gets louder. You start seeing sunlight pouring in. This is a really dramatic thing. I mean, honestly, I think 
I wouldn't be the only pastor preaching a sermon who would just stop and stare and wait and maybe send the deacons up. Will you see what's happening up there? And nothing's going to happen until we see what's about to take place. And then all of a sudden, the hole keeps getting larger and larger, and a man who's paralyzed, lying on a mat, gets lowered by his four friends through the roof, kind of like a scene out of Mission Impossible. And he's there, and the man on the mat looks up at Jesus, and Jesus looks down at him, and the very first thing Jesus says is this, Son, I forgive you. Now, if, you know, it strikes me there's probably just a twinge of humor if this was Jesus' house. Because, okay, now Jesus needs a new roof. And so you can see Jesus looking at the man, yeah, I forgive you. <laughs> you know, so if it's Peter's house, okay, different you know, application. There is one application no matter what. Because the guy's looking at Jesus like, uh, don't you see I have a little bigger problem here, Jesus? You forgive me? Okay. And, and one of the things, this is kind of a little side note on this text, but one of the things it points out is there's a difference between our true need and our felt needs. The man, he doesn't ask for forgiveness. He obviously needed healing. But what does Jesus do? He goes straight past the man's felt need to what the man's greatest need was. And part of the application in this is Jesus knows your need this morning. You know, as Doug relayed earlier, everything we do is laid bare before the eyes of God. And we're going to give account for all the things that we do and say. But also what that means is whatever you're going through this morning, whatever your needs are, He knows. He knows how you may be suffering. He knows about your problems, your trials, your concerns. He knows what woke you up last night, causing you to worry. And the good news is He cares for you in all things. But sometimes our greatest need in life isn't what we think it to be. And that's why I asked that opening question is, what do you most need today? Because one of the convicting things for me in studying this this week is our hearts long for more, but often what I do in prayer and what I assume you do in prayer is you simply ask Jesus to give you your idol. Because rather than asking for him to give us himself, we just simply ask Jesus, give me my idols and I'll be happy. And here's what I mean by that if it's not clear. I'm not minimizing if you need healing today. But what we need even more than healing is Jesus himself. And sometimes we say, Jesus, just give me healing. Just give me mental peace. Just give me another $2,000. Just fix my kids. And you see, what we're doing when we've said, this is my greatest need, because if I get this from you, Jesus, now life will be okay. You see, by very definition, what we are asking for is, Jesus, give me something, 
that will now satisfy me or fix my situation. And by very definition, anything that we ask for in that regard greater than the Lord Himself is by nature and definition an idol. So often what I find myself doing is simply praying, Lord Jesus, give me my idols and I'll be happy. It's not wrong to ask for things, so don't hear me say that. But if we define our greatest need in life and the thing that will finally give us satisfaction, the thing that will finally give us peace or meaning or purpose, if that is anything other than the Lord Himself, we're asking for an idol. And so Jesus bypasses the man's healing and goes straight to His greatest need which is this man's soul being reconciled to God. Sometimes he does deliver us in the ways that we have asked for. And sometimes he delights in doing that, just as he did with the man here. But don't confuse felt need with greatest need in life. If all Jesus gives us is himself fully, that's all we need. Now, the physical healing that takes place in this account is, I mean, it's amazing, honestly. I mean, we would be like these people. We've never seen anything like this if we saw it unfold before us. But what's also rather astounding about this account is that the man's healing and Jesus' ability to do that isn't the central point of this passage. What's central in this pericope, what's front and center, is what Jesus says in verse 10, which all deals with the fact that He has authority to forgive sins. That's what this opening passage in Mark chapter 2 is all about. Jesus has brought the kingdom of God here, and He, as the King of the kingdom, has authority to forgive our sins. You could say it this way, as I have it on the screen there, what he's claiming in the presence of all the people gathered around him that day is he is God himself. We read, now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And you know what? They're absolutely right. You know, we write these guys off, you know, so quickly, but what they are thinking here, they are 100% right, except for the part that he's blaspheming. They are right to say no one can forgive sins but God. And they knew what Jesus was saying. Now, these teachers, just so you know, these are probably either scribes or Pharisees, legal experts sent from Jerusalem into Capernaum, because word has gotten out about Jesus, even this early in his ministry. And so they're coming to check out this little Jesus movement to hear what this guy is teaching and saying and see for themselves what he's doing. And then they see Jesus say to a guy, your sins are forgiven and some other things, and they fly off the rails. He's claiming to be our God. And you know what? They're right, because that is exactly what Jesus was claiming. Now, earlier when Doug gave an assurance of pardon, you know, when we give you an assurance of pardon, that's not Rick or Doug or any of the other pastors pronouncing you forgiven because of our work. It doesn't work that way. And the priest, the leaders 
of the temple. They knew they could give an assurance of pardon after a sacrifice for sins, but it was just an assurance. They couldn't forgive anyone themselves because it is against God alone, technically, that all sins are committed. And so only God has the right to forgive someone their sins. And Jesus makes it even worse because he claims the title Son of Man. And now this could be a whole other sermon, but you'll find this phrase, Son of Man, in Daniel chapter 7 and in other places. And what it means is the Son of Man in Daniel is someone who is divine. And so this would have sent their antenna up and their radars going off. We know what this guy is saying. I remember sitting in Systematics 3 at Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando, and R.C. Sproul was the teacher, and he was just kind of hammering us about titles of Jesus. And he used to say, students, remember, anytime you read the phrase Son of Man, that's a statement of Jesus' divinity. And anytime you read Son of God, that's actually a statement of Jesus' humanity. He says they sound like just the opposite, But remember, Son of Man is a term of divinity. Son of God is a term referencing God come as man. And he would hammer that home. And so the the legal experts of the law, they knew Jesus calling himself Son of Man, he's claiming divinity in addition to forgiving sins. They're flabbergasted. And so we read this. Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Now, most likely the religious leaders, when Jesus pronounced forgiveness of sins on this man, they're thinking, well, that's really convenient, isn't it? Because no one gathered here today can tell whether or not what you just said has come true. You can't prove. There's no objective way to measure. Are are the sins forgiven? So that's really convenient. That's really easy for you to say. That's probably what they were thinking. And so what Jesus does is, well, what's easier to say? That or get up and take your mat and walk? I'll prove to you that I have authority to forgive sins. Son, stand up and walk. And he does. So he brought the healing to prove his authority in forgiving sin. It reminds me, those of you who know me well know that some of my favorite books of all time are written by J.R.R. Tolkien. And in his trilogy series, the last book, The Return of the King, one of the passages I love and just pictured in my mind, and the movies did it in, in slight part, but there's this great battle that's happened with some of Sauron's you know, greatest leaders, and a bunch of your favorite characters are hurt and they're dying. Some of the, some of the dying, and they're in what are called the Houses of Healing, are Mary, one of the uh, hobbits, Lady Eowyn, who's just this incredible female character in the books, and Faramir, who's son of the steward of Gondor. And everyone loves Faramir. 
And there's this picture where Aragorn, who is the rightful king, has been told, come in secretly dressed as a ranger, because if anyone knew who you were and what you were claiming, you're probably going to be killed. And so there's this great battle that happens, and all these people are dying because they've been hit with poison arrows and that kind of thing. And there's this scene, and you see it a little bit in the movie here, in the Houses of Healing where one of the nurses says these words. This is from the novel. The eldest woman who served in that house, looking on the fair face of Faramir, wept, for all the people loved him. And she said, alas, if he should die... Would that there were kings in Gondor, as there were once upon a time, they say. For it is said in old lore, the hands of the king are the hands of a healer. And so the rightful king could ever be known. And Gandalf looks at her and says, Maybe a king has indeed returned to Gondor. Or have you not heard of the tidings that have come to this city? And what happens is Aragorn, the rightful king, he takes this very common herb that everybody thinks is a worthless thing, he crushes it, and he uses it on those who are sick, and they are all healed. And Faramir, who everyone loves, he wakes up, and he knows that Aragorn has healed him, and he says, my Lord. It's this beautiful thing where the rightful king is shown because he brought healing as only a true king could. Jesus is showing by his healing he is the rightful king of all of the universe, and he has the authority to forgive people their sins. One of the commentators I read this week, I loved how he said this. He says, the miracles not just this one of healing the man, but all of them, they announce and inaugurate what the future will offer. They are the presence in history of what will be the promise of history, a world restored to wholeness and open to God's presence. That's what's coming. Sometimes people who are sick terminally here at Stonebridge will tell them, And we don't mean this in any negative way, but we tell them sincerely, your full healing is guaranteed. Sometimes the Lord delights to do it on this side of glory, and we've seen that. And sometimes the Lord waits until He calls them home to glory. But the saints that are called home, their healing is guaranteed. All of us. And the future of history and what this book promises is there's a day coming where the kingdom of God will be unleashed fully. No more sin, no more wrong, no more pain, no more tears, no more of the injustice and the agony of this life. And the miracles are just a little foreshadowing, taste of the promise of what is to come. So the first section as you read it this week and study it on your own, remember, it's all about the authority of Jesus. Now as we move into the second section... Here's what I want you to think about for a minute. Imagine you're in Uptown Charlotte at a meeting. You've parked your car at one of the meters, and your meeting goes just slightly longer than you expected it to. So you race out of the building, running to your car, only to find that right as you get there, you are receiving a citation. I think that 
the men and women who do this job have to be some of the most unloved people in the world. I was down, I was in Uptown Charlotte not that long ago. Uh, I'd been called in for jury duty, and I went back out, and as I was walking along, I saw a number of people sharing some very colorful language with one of the people giving them citations. Now imagine this, that job which can be so hated, imagine that our country was taken over by a foreign government, hostily, and rather than certain people fighting against that government, they said, we're going to work with them. And this government, where, say wherever you go and park during the week, now there's meters there that this new government has put in place. And so, every so often, or using your credit card or your phone the way they do it now, you have to fill the meter and pay the toll. That's just kind of scratching the surface of how people would have looked at Levi in our passage today. You see, Israel had been taken over by Rome, a hostile foreign government, and tax collectors were seen as collaborators with an evil empire. They're seen as Jews who gave up their worship of the true God. And, and typically, the tax collectors were excommunicated from the synagogues, declared unbelievers. They were known as dishonest people, people who did not love their people or their country, and so collaborated with this foreign government. That's what we come to in the second scene where we read this. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? You see, to them, you don't get any worse than a tax collector. And the friends of tax collectors, they're just as bad. They felt justified in looking down on these people, in hating them. After all, they're turncoats on our people. I want you to know that Levi following Jesus is actually just as miraculous as the man who was healed in the first story. Just as that man in the first story, it was amazing that he got up from his pallet and walked out. It's just as amazing that Levi the tax collector got up from his toll booth and followed Jesus. Levi was situated in the, one of the sweetest spots for tax collectors because Capernaum was right on the border between two territories, which meant if you left Capernaum or if you entered Capernaum, you had to stop by Levi's toll booth and pay a tax, leaving or entering. Levi was probably very wealthy. He was notoriously, I'm sure, hated. And I have to imagine that Andrew and Peter, James and John, if there was any sense of them of, hey, we were called by the rabbi to follow him, we're something. The moment he called a tax collector, they have to be thinking, oh my, what does that say about us? The disciples have to be wondering, what is he thinking? 
no respectable rabbi calls a tax collector. I wonder if Jesus' words were the first kind words Levi had heard in years. It's possible. But what was actually shocking to his disciples was scandalous to the religious leaders when now Jesus goes and has a meal with this guy. Because a meal represents full acceptance in that culture. And what we see, what's central in this little story here related to sin is that it's Jesus' mission to bring healing to a broken world. This is seen in these words. On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, if we were to apply this to us individually or to Stonebridge, here's where it hits me. You guys are quite respectable people, most of you. And we have bass players and musicians and things like that. But most of you are, you know, highly respectable people in this place. The dirty secret of Christianity is that oftentimes the longer you become a, are a Christian, the more tempted you are to live this way, thinking that God's grace is available only to people who look a lot like you who live in your neighborhood, who dress the way you dress, who have a level of education that's commensurate with your own. We tend to start adopting this crazy thinking that the gospel of grace, yeah, it's open, but it's really, it's really open to people a lot like us. And what Jesus is doing with the calling of Levi, also known as Matthew, after whom the gospel is named, he's saying that following him is open to everyone. That means goths and terrorists and drug addicts, the 1%, politicians, nerds and geeks, the untouchables, rappers, and you could go on and on. You see, following Jesus is open to everyone, even the worst of sinners. Position, caste, reputation, race, things that we use to typically divide each other in society, they are no liability to Jesus Christ in the economy of grace. The religious leaders, the way they acted was kind of like you might get infected by sinners if you are around them too much. Jesus took the attitude, I am here not to be infected, I'm here to infect them with grace. That's why I've come. And this is good news because all of us, even if you're not a bass player, you are a sinner. And the good news is this. Sinners don't need to do something first to be worthy recipients of God's love. You don't have to clean yourself up. You don't have to go prove yourself by some great feat of strength by giving some amount to prove that now maybe God, you're worthy of His love? No. What makes you worthy of God's grace in your life is simply your willingness to respond to His love. That's all. That's humbling, but that's the best news ever. 
And what we see here in our stories today, Jesus not only has the authority to forgive sins, it's the whole reason He's come to save sinners, even the ones society says are the worst of the worst. And that's why in the passage we won't get to this morning, he talks about a garment, you can't put it on, a new patch on old clothing, you, you know, the kingdom of God is like this great feast, you can't put new wine in old wine. What he's saying is this, I have come to do something so radically new in bringing the kingdom that the old structures of Judaism cannot contain it. It explodes the paradigm because I am God in the flesh bringing the kingdom and my kingdom is open to everyone. That's good news. And what this passage makes us consider is, is it the Pharisees' outlook or Jesus's that more reflects our own. It makes us ask questions like, are the only people you hang out with Christians? Why is that? How good are we at calling sinners? Do we even know any despicable sinners beyond the guys on stage? Do you seek them out? I'll end with this. He's a, he's a, I know when I mention his name, some people are going to love him, some people are going to hate him. There's good and bad with him. But there's a guy named Tony Campolo who wrote a book a number of years ago. And in this book, he tells a story of something that happened to him that I think captures well this concept of Jesus coming to save sinners. Because Tony talks about how he was in Hawaii, in Honolulu, and it was 2.30 in the morning and he woke up because his body was still on East Coast time of the States. So he's up at 2.30 and he's like, I got to get some coffee and I got to get something to eat. So he wanders out of his hotel and he goes and finds a little diner that's open. Only place you could see at that time in the morning. He gets coffee. He gets kind of a donut that had obviously been made the previous morning. And he's sitting there and he said after about 15 minutes of being in the diner, in comes a flood of people, and they're all prostitutes. And so it's Tony Campolo, Christian speaker, Harry, the owner of the diner, Harry's wife who's working in the kitchen, and about 15 prostitutes in this diner. And he said, I was trying to then eat my donut rather quickly to get out of there, and here's what happened. As he's sitting there, he's like, they're talking about their night, and it was crude, and it was foul, and I was really uncomfortable. And then I heard one of the young prostitutes say these words, you know, tomorrow's my birthday. And another one said, so what? You want us to give you a cake? You want us to sing for you? What do you want? And she kind of slumped her shoulder and said, I don't want anything. I was just saying it's my birthday. I wouldn't expect anything from you because I've never had a birthday party. I've never had a cake. I was just saying it's my birthday tomorrow. Then and there, Tony decided he was going to do something. And so he wait, rather than scoot out because he was uncomfortable, he decided to wait until all the prostitutes went home. And then he spoke to Harry, the guy who owned the place, and said, Harry, would you let me throw a birthday party for that girl? And Harry said, he called his wife out and said, hey, this guy wants to throw a birthday party for Agnes. And his wife said, I love Agnes. She's so sweet. She's really messed up, but she's sweet. 
And so they agreed that they would throw a birthday party for Agnes the next night because he asked, the owner said, yeah, they come in here every night and mob the place about 3.30 in the morning. So Tony said, I tell you what, I'll be here at 2.30. I'll decorate the place. I'll go get a cake. And the owner's like, no, 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 cake's mine. I'm making a cake. And so they, they did up the whole place. And the next night, sure enough, 3.30 rolls in, and here come all the prostitutes into the diner. And Tony and Harry and Harry's wife all shout, Happy birthday, Agnes! They bring out a cake filled with 30 candles. And then all the whores start singing happy birthday to Agnes. Agnes crumbles on the spot. And Harry's like, come on, Agnes, blow out the candles. And she couldn't, so Harry blew them out for her. And he said, cut the cake, Agnes. And here's how Tony talks about it. He said, she was so shocked. She was so shocked that anyone would do something like this for her. She asked, can I just keep the cake and not cut it? So Harry's like, well, it's your cake, I guess. So she said, I- I'll be right back. And what Agnes did is she went and picked up the cake and carried it like it was the Holy Grail, backing out of the diner down to her hotel to take the cake home and then come back. And Tony said, it got really awkward, because what do you say now? So he writes, when the door closed and we're waiting there for Agnes, there's a stunned silence in the place. And so not knowing what else to do, I broke the silence by saying, what do you say we pray? He writes, looking back on it now, it seems more than strange to be leading a prayer meeting with a bunch of prostitutes in a diner in Honolulu at 3.30 in the morning. But then it just felt like the right thing to do. So I prayed for Agnes. I prayed for her salvation. I prayed that her life would be changed and that God would be good to her. And when I finished, the owner leaned over the counter with a trace of hostility in his voice. He said, hey, you never told me you were a preacher. What kind of church do you belong to? In one of those moments, when just the right words came, I answered, I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for whores at 3.30 in the morning. Harry waited a moment and then almost sneered as he answered, No, you don't. There's no church like that. If there was, I'd join it. I'd join a church like that. Wouldn't we all? Wouldn't we all join a church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning and prays for their salvation? This passage challenged me. Who do I think is beyond the realms of God's grace? Who do I treat differently walking in our doors? Who do I not invite because I think they're just too different? May we be a church that gets Jesus has all authority to forgive sin. And it's actually why he came to bring his kingdom and he sends us out. He prayed, Father, protect them from the evil one but go in His name and spread far the grace of our glorious Savior. May we seek to be that kind of church. Lord Jesus, we are just scratching the surface of this beautiful passage, 
and what you have come to do. Lord, forgive us for the ways we think that your grace is limited to a certain type of individual. Lord, may we be people who first stand in so much awe that you have saved us, a sinner, that we would be motivated to share far and wide your great love. Jesus, it's not our job to fix people, to change them. That's your work. But help us to be faithful to tell and spread the truth so that your kingdom grows and that Charlotte and our region is changed and that there's something beautiful that happens because they see the beauty of a church that lives in the glory of its Savior. We pray in your holy name. Amen.